nature of addiction is that you can't say no. Exactly. You don't want to stop. If like if you're truly addicted, not from any pejorative sense, but just like that's what addiction means is right. that is that is that you don't want to stop. You don't know how to stop. You you can't imagine what it would be like to live life without that support. Absolutely. It's like, like well, okay. All you got to do is be willing, and then what? You enter an environment where other people are facing that. I mean, for some people, you have to hit the crisis, right? Sure. It, it, and and when I say crisis, I mean life disruption. It doesn't have to be a complete tragedy. Unfortunately, that's the scary part, right? Yeah. You don't get to control how that unfolds. And so I'm for doing all the invitation you can, all the setup, mm-hmm. all the recovery tools, all the... Um, recovery capital that you can muster in a situation and it's going to be somebody else's choice Good morning and welcome to Finding New Waters. My name is Graham Durge and I'm the founder and CEO of New Waters Recovery in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm joined today by our, by our executive director, Justin McClendon, and therapist, John Krejci. John is a licensed clinical social worker who works with teens and young adults specializing in trauma, addiction, and change management. He serves as board president of Journeyman Triangle, a teen mentoring and leadership development organization, and as a member of the advisory board for NCSU Masters in Social Work. John does most of his work with young adults, teens, and their families who have suffered with trauma, addiction, dependencies, and various forms of failure to launch. John's approach is highly relational with a solid background in neuroscience, human development, substance use, and various modalities for trauma recovery, including EMDR. In addition, he started young adult intensive outpatient. He's let me read you that part real quick. In addition, he started a young adult intensive outpatient program for Triangle Springs. Worked as an emergency room clinician and in-home therapist prior to that. Our goal in creating Finding New Waters is to provide a resource for families to help navigate the complexities of supporting a loved one struggling with substance use or mental health. When we find ourselves in a crisis due to one of these issues, most people have no idea where to turn. We hope to shed some light onto what is often the darkest hour for many families. So, John, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, glad to be with you. Of course. And, um, you know, we've, we've obviously had a little bit of time to connect here uh, before getting on, on live. And, um, you know, one of the things that I love to start out with in, in a lot of these uh, episodes is I love to get just like a little bit of an idea for how did you get into this work? How did you get into this field? Um, I find that it's it's always pretty interesting. There's always a, a good story kind of aligned with that typically because, you know, again, this isn't really um, – this isn't a work that, you know, you kind of grow up and say that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. You you know, there's some sort of episode or situation that kind of brings us to, to the work that we do. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into the behavioral health field. Oh, wow. Um, I've got three sons. They're all <laughs> late 20s, early 30s now. And I think the challenges of parenting and, well, frankly, going through divorce, I got support going through that process. And, and I, um, that support allowed me to really um, shift the way I show up in the world. And, and like a big target for me was 
I really want to be friends with my kids mm. in their 20s. Like when they come back, you know, it's like kids, teenagers don't want to be around you often <laughs> a lot of times. But yeah. when they come back, I want to, I, I want to done, have done enough that my kids really want to know me. Yeah. And, um, and um, Dennis, Dennis Parnell, the guy who founded The Healing Place, um, he challenged me to go back and do it professionally when he saw the stuff I was doing with Journeyman and with Mankind Project and coaching with friends. He's like, <laughs> I sat down with him at the end of, uh, end of a kind of end of the year lunch and catching up, and he said to me, John, I know you. You don't need a degree to do this kind of work. But you have to have a degree to do this kind of work. So when are you going to suck it up and do what you don't want to do so you can do what you're called to do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, there's the exact words he said to me. I still remember them, and, and he was exactly right. I, yeah. I really felt um, a drive to do this kind of work. And I, did, I, mean, I was working with the Biotech Center and the Small Business and Technology Development Center before that. I was an entrepreneur. Yeah. I spun a couple of technologies out of NC State, yeah. and I liked – strategy and business planning and I always thought a business plan was like the hero's journey right you know and so I always kind of thought that way and then when I got an opportunity to really work with with people with personal stuff I just found it was it was more rewarding right. for me I mean yeah, like I still like the business thing a lot it's fun I'm geeky right. that way but like yeah there's just something about working with people and their families that that well, I was just I don't know. I guess that touched me so deeply. Rewarding. And I, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, obviously it's, it's tough to work in this field from a lot of perspectives because, um, you know, obviously we see a lot of people that don't make it. Um, we see a lot of people that aren't successful. Um, the, the success rates in general, I think are, are pretty abysmal, you know, in, in the behavioral health field. And we're, we're obviously always trying to kind of figure out how we can be better at that. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's so amazing when we get a client that comes in and, and the light has turned back on in their eyes. And, and that's what it's all about at the end of the day, you know. Uh, when you see those alumni come back, when you see those clients come back who have taken the suggestions, who have followed the path, gotten out of their own way, uh, surrendered to the process, and, and, you know, incredible things happen for them. So, um, yeah, incredibly rewarding work that we do, but also really hard work, too. Um, now, and, and I know, you know, from kind of looking at, at your bio and all that, that you, you like to work a lot with families and, and kind of young adult patients yeah. as well. So tell us a little bit about the, the work you do with young adults. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, what's really big in my mind, just cause you said about the, the pain and, you know, doing this kind of work, mm -hmm. like the, the, um, the reason I, I don't think I'll burn out, you know, it, it is painful when you lose someone that's yeah. really Absolutely. tough. Yeah. Um, to move through. But in general, I don't see it as my job to fix people's pain. Right. That I think the pain is an invitation to wake up. And like, I, I respect pain deeply. Like, like I don't tell somebody who's in the middle of the pain, oh, that's going to be a gift to you. You know, it's like the appropriate response to that is, well, wouldn't be appropriate on a podcast. Right, <laughs> but, right. but, but like, th that's the big thing to me. It's like, I see my job is trying to partner with a person for them to understand their pain and shift their relationship yep. to it. Mm. So that's with a client, but oh gosh, maybe even more so with parents, like with family. Yeah. It's like when you see your kid suffering, um, you know, someone said to me that having a, having a kid is like 
is like taking your heart and putting it on the outside of your chest. Mm. Like, mm. you know, anybody can hurt you and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I see that as the source of so much of the trouble. It's like you, you train a kid up and they start being independent or rebellious. And, and at that point, you know, you don't have direct control anymore. Mm. You know, you have to figure out what kind of influence you have, but like mm-hmm. you don't have control. And so they're subject to, well, the world yeah, and all absolutely. the things that happen in their own immaturities. And, and so figuring out how to help someone help yeah. their kids and help themselves is, is, I guess, a big part of what attracts me to it. I like mm-hmm. doing that part of the work. Well, and it's so counterintuitive too, right? As a parent, you know, I've got three daughters myself. And as a parent, when you see your kids struggling, you want to circle them up, hug them, and, you know, just never let them leave, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that obviously doesn't work in this situation, right? And I think that's a big thing that we, on a daily basis, are, are talking to families about is codependency, enabling the situation, you know, finding where that leverage is for these young adult clients specifically, like, is it financial? Are, are they providing, you know, a roof over their head? Um, and really, you know, trying to kind of, you know, manipulate in a lot of ways to uh, help them make the right decision. And, um, you know, can you elaborate a little bit on that, Justin? Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I think, it, you know, some things we were talking about before we before we went live is, you know, I think a lot of times, if especially if you have a young person that is struggling, right, or whether it's an active addiction or there's other things that are going on, or they're just stuck in that place as you as you uh, refer to it as this kind of dependent position, if you will. Uh, I think there's just a lot of underdevelopment, and the there's a lot of inability to make appropriate decisions to you know to better change that their life, right? And I think that's where the parents can come in in those situations, right? Is being able to provide the correct influence you know, set the appropriate boundaries to assist them in making the right decisions. And that's a lot of the work that we wind up doing here is trying to help families that maybe have never uh, charted those waters before to be able to understand why these things are important, help them understand a little bit of what's kind of going on in that family dynamic, and then to coach them in the direction of like, okay, well, how can we assist right now to get them to make at least the next right decision? And then we can kind of figure things out from there. Right. Right. I mean, right. You learn that. Yeah. in the process, right? right? Like everybody wakes up and they're already swimming down the river. Yeah, You know, it's not like you get to sit and decide when's the right time and the right place and who you want to go with. It's like mm-hmm. when consciousness hits you, consciousness of the problem, consciousness mm-hmm. of, of, of the need to do something, you're already like caught up in it already. And so mm-hmm. uh, a lot of that is, you know, people get, well, when, when, when a kid's born, they're dependent. Yeah, it's a you know an infant is never wrong, and it's always your responsibility to meet their need. Yeah, so it's right. like one of the few things that's still sacred in our culture. I think is a mother's love mm-hmm. for an infant. It's like that's it. Yeah. But then like then they're a toddler, and then they are wrong sometimes. <laughs> and in either way, they they whine, and you do something about it. So it's still it's still they're expressing. I'm not okay and you need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Still dependent, right? Mm-hmm. But so you do something about it and you try to get them to quit whining and to use their words. Yeah. Right. And they get a little older and then they're using their words, but they're like, they're like little attorneys. You know, right. it's like, <laughs> I'm hungry, which means you need to make me dinner. Right. But you know, and but that's a simple one. But it's like, well, my friends get to do it. You know, mm-hmm. like like there's all kinds of things that that well, people learn to act and manipulate, right? Yeah. You, know, you 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 learn your parents' buttons, right? Exactly. And 
And, and so you're, the kids are highly practiced at, um, even if they're not even aware of it, right. at what they need to say in order to get somebody to, to do something different. Yeah, so instinctual. Um, you know, there's um, the funny one that, that falls in that same line. Well, the not funny one that falls in that same line is suicide ideation. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time, suicide ideation is, it's a cry for help, but it's, but it's a statement, it's the hot button statement of, I'm not okay, and you need to do something. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to take it seriously because, well, it's serious for one, yeah. but, but for most people, it's a dependent cry for help. It's, it's just, that's the end of the track. That's where I think most people say that at some point. Mm-hmm. And if they're not saying that, they're saying something like, if that happens again, I'm going to lose my, sh-, you know, right. it, which is the same thing. Mm. It's saying, I can't tolerate the way things are or how right. I feel. And I don't know how to proactively do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to act out disruptively yep. and I'll accept the random result. You know, somebody else will have to do something different mm-hmm. to make it okay. And then I'll accept whatever happens from that. It's dependence, yeah. which to me is the core the core part of it. it's why, you know, addicts, even older addicts are, you know, people with substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. I, I respect that. When I'm talking clinically, you know, I talk about the category, but like when you're talking about an individual, it really matters. They're not an addict. They're a person that's wrestling with problems, right. often trauma, often other things. But, but anyway, when, um, when uh, juice, I'm sorry, I just lost yeah. my place. I guess. <laughs> um, Yeah. So uh, a thought that was coming up because we're talking about parents and how parents can potentially or how the situation arises and then how parents kind of respond and maybe even help sometimes keep them in that dependent position by protecting them from their pain. So I wonder, you know, you've talked a lot about this kind of biopsychosocial spiritual model and some Uh other ways that you that you uh, describe that. Maybe maybe it would be helpful to kind of just outline that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, so, so I think it is helpful, mm-hmm. like it's helpful for parents to see that they're moving through a process here. Everybody goes from that unconscious place to, to some kind of responsibility, some kind of self-consciousness to, to some more social consciousness and their place and identity among people. And, and then whatever's beyond that, some kind of higher purpose, right? Mm-hmm. But like you can think of that bio, psycho, social, spiritual as a stair step. Like, mm-hmm. and, and like you don't, well, bio would be your body and your brain, but the psycho would be like uh, your mind. And the social is obvious, you know, the, your, 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 your family and your peers and mm-hmm. extends beyond that. And then spiritual, I think of, I try to define spiritual as something like your existential narrative, mm-hmm. right? Like what you really believe about the way the world works and your role in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if and if you really want to pursue that one further, I like to think of it, at least in my work, I like to think of it as what's your relationship with suffering mm-hmm. and what's your relationship with beauty? Mm. And I think a big part of AA is teaching people um, how to have a more healthy relationship with suffering, yeah. both previous suffering and, and the day-to-day yeah, that you encounter. So, so... So I think that people are moving through that, but you don't leave the body right. and, and go to the mind. Well, well, I guess another way to say it would be dependence 
independence, interdependence, and transcendence. Mm. So like dependence would be that somebody else is responsible for meeting my needs. Mm-hmm. Independence would be, okay, I'll meet my own needs and I'll meet some of your needs in order to get my needs met. Like mm-hmm. uh, an employee, that's what you expect from an employee, right? There's the contract. I'll do my part and I'll get something for it. Mm. And then if you think about interdependence, that you sort of let go of that contract. It's not tit for tat in your friendships. It's like, well, you can come, you can come get something out of my refrigerator and like, you know, bring something at some point too. You know, it's like, like I can freely meet some needs of other people and I can trust that my needs will get met, but it's not like everything's a tit for tat mm. thing. And then, um, and then I think in the higher level, that's, um, I can sacrifice my needs. And that's the one where like, you know that if you're, you're a parent, like yeah. you, you, you know that you sacrifice for your kids in ways they don't even see, may not even want, right. may tell you you're wrong for doing it, but you still do it because it's the right thing. Like that's a sacrifice. Yeah. That's sacrificing your need, but it's not, that's not codependent. That's a conscious choice to make an investment in somebody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at some point that becomes debil- debilitating for, for you know, the young adult, you know, person who's struggling with these substances or something like that, right? right. So at some point we need to kind of change that narrative. Um, right. Yeah. And so, and that's uh, same line of thinking. Like, so how, in your opinion, how do you think sometimes the, the parent plays a role in maybe keeping uh, a young adult in that dependent position? What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so one of the beautiful and difficult things mm-hmm. is to help, particularly moms, you know, dads too, but like mom is the one who's usually sacrificing her body for the baby, right? right. And there is that, you know, I said before, I think that a mother's love for an infant is that thing we think of as sacred. Mother's milk is actually, you know, an analogy for like mm-hmm. that, yeah. right? In in other places. Um, and so moms in particular, have to do major shifts from you're always right, you're never wrong, it's my job to sacrifice for you to um, what is my role, where are the boundaries, Mm -hmm. and when do I need to let you fail? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as I'm saying that, like, of course, it's the same for dads, too, and they're right alongside it. I think that that women are more... um, I see women more emotionally affected by that choice. Mm-hmm. I think in our society, dads are taught, you know, tough it up, you know, no pain, no gain. You know, the sports analogies or the other things like that 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 just show up as masculine challenge, mm-hmm. you know, competitive nature. So there's that competition and that nurture, and usually those polarize a little bit between masculine and feminine. Sure. And so, so you get that place where where you have a teenager who's really smart and they could go to a really good school, but they're not doing their homework because they don't care, because they're lost, because they have girlfriend issues, because they whatever. It's like, well, if you don't make them do it, they're going to have big consequences. They're going to miss out, right? right? But if you do it for them when they get there, they're not going to be able to do it themselves. That, to me, is is a frequent... Set up. I think that's a modern problem. Yeah. Sure, it's a well, modern problem. Well, and I think problem. also too that it it just you know 
they are relentless too in so many cases, right? And sometimes it's just easier to give in, right? You know, yeah. and that's a hard thing, right? And it's just oh, easier yeah. to appease, pacify, whatever you want to call it. And uh, and but obviously that's not our role as parents, and and holding that boundary and holding that line and helping them walk through the fear and helping them. You know, just grow and 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 prosper is is really our job, right? And and that's kind of not happening if we're just appeasing and, and enabling the situation. Mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. So, but it's hard. It's hard, man. It, it is. And my kids are still young, um, so we well, that's really the time crossed, to do it too. We haven't really right? crossed that path yet, right? But um, you know, I'm in recovery. My wife's in recovery, and um, you know, chances are one of our kids probably will have some sort of issue, right? Hopefully not, but you know, just, uh, cards are stacked against us, so. Um, yeah, I mean, just being very, um, being very open with them and having the, these conversations with them early on and setting those those expectations pretty early on is important. You know. Well, I see such a big opportunity in 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 setting up that progression when they're young, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so probably one of the one of the many mistakes I did as a parent is treating them like they were little adults, mm. you know, give them too much choice, too much freedom, mm. too much of what their opinion um, ma- matters or matters isn't really the right word for that. But, mm. but like you can be really tight with young kids mm-hmm. and then loosen up. Yeah. Right. But, but if you've been really loose getting tighter it's later on, hard. so you got a yep. teenager who's used to a tremendous amount of freedom and you have parents saying, well, we want to implement boundaries now. It's like, well, yeah. I don't know. Like you know, they're a wildflower, right? They're right. a wild whatever. <laughs> um, what do you do with that? And one of the big things that I like to think about, I think a couple of the big skills, one of them is um, you really want to think about not lighting a fire under someone, but finding the fire, mm-hmm. right? So like feed the fire, invest in the thing where they have some initiative. And that can be really hard. You know, someone's playing video games all day long and they don't care about anything else other than that. Right. Yeah. Okay, that's a problem. So you need to maybe cut off some resources, yeah. right? Because there's some, um, but um, yeah, the big one, that's a big one. Find out me. what they're passionate about, mm-hmm. right? And and really just just drive that home. And I think that, that makes me think a lot about too, you know, I've worked uh, primarily really with a young adult population over the last kind of 10 years and, um, you know, super passionate about working with, with that demographic. But, you know, what I've always found, too, is making that connection for these young adults in recovery uh, and, and, you know, rather than them seeing, OK, my life is over because I can no longer use substances safely again for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. potentially um, and hopefully. But, you know, life is not over because you can't get high, right? Life is just beginning. Look at all the amazing things you can do, right? And uh, and that's so important for particularly, I think, young adults because it's like, oh, look at all these life, you know, situations that I'm never – I'm not going to be able to have a glass of champagne at my wedding right. or this or that or all these things that are just monumental and catastrophic situations that, that we aren't going to be able to uh, celebrate. And uh, the reality is when those things actually come up, they don't matter, you know, not like you don't even think twice about it, you know, and, and once you kind of get into the recovery, you understand that that, that was all just kind of a bunch of bullshit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yep. And um, so, you know, I think that it's uh, speaking to what you were just kind of speaking to of lighting that fire and the finding that passion with kids, I think it's so important. Yeah. And like, okay. So if you got someone who's already got a problem, then it's a problem, right? Yep. You know, um, 
you can't just feed the fire because their fire passion is probably about using. Right. Mm -hmm. That's they do view the world through those lenses. Their friends are viewed through those lenses. Right. Their recreation, their their whole identity, the whole yeah, identity absolutely. is viewed through those lenses. And so you wind up. Um, so it's hard. So I think that's a cut off resources, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. if someone is resistant and in denial, then the thing that's going to make them change is a crisis. Mm -hmm. And you hope it's not a big crisis, but you're not in control. Mm -hmm. of the crisis. You can, you can handle some things. Dennis Parnell used to talk about a controlled fall. So right. like if somebody is in denial and resistant and they're not going along with your thing as well, first off, if you're the one supplying resources, don't invest in anything you don't agree with. Right. And if they're resistant and they say, well, we, I can do this on my own, then you kind of set them up or to, to make their attempts. And if those attempts don't work, you're ready to catch them. Yep. And that's, I think, what he meant by controlled fall. It's yeah. like, okay, I can't control you, right. and there's going to be a fall. Um, one of the things that I talk about with parents is that, that can be really frightening and difficult is that insight doesn't usually change someone. Mm. Like if you're waiting around for them to finally go, I'm tired of this and I want to change, that's probably not the way it's going to happen. Right. It's probably going to be something happens that that forces their hand to change. Yep. And I mean, usually it's something cuts off their resources, right? right? So so a lot of times older people, they might not change for a partner. They might change for kids. Right. Um, but they're really going to change if they lose their job because right. then their, 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 their finances get cut off. Right. And then you know, in more tragic circumstances, somebody gets a DUI or somebody mm -hmm. has got to go to jail. Jail stops people. There's there's jail that saved a lot of well, you guys would know that. There's jail that saved lots of people. Yeah. Right. Yep. Absolutely. 100%. Um well it's really hard because because when someone's addicted, they use their weakness as the leverage point. Mm -hmm. That's their power. Like, oh, you have to. I mean, that's that dependence again. Yeah. I'm not okay, mm -hmm. and you need to do something about it. And, oh, my gosh, if that person has struggled with anxiety or depression yeah. or eating disorder or or some other kind of struggle like that where you know they're having a harder time than their peers, it's like, well, of course you're going to help them. Of course you want to. And... um you know that old thing from recovery don't don't do anything for someone that they can do for themselves mm -hmm. or if you do you're going to disempower right. them Absolutely. It, it's hard because if someone has a dependency that they're not able to let go of to move through you got to treat them differently than you would cuz like most of parenting is about love and hope and optimism and here we're going to give you this chance this momentum or whatever yeah. but if but if someone is um if someone is in that dependent place they're going to eat up all the resources all the hope that you mm. put at them is supply it's a stash yeah you know and i feel like we see that a lot too like you were talking about limiting or cutting off those resources as a method of kind of helping that person you know grow or make the right decision and I think, you know, going back to that, like we see that a lot, right? I mean, whether it's a young adult, I mean, sometimes it's it's an adult, right? And it's a, it's a you know, a, a intimate relationship that we're dealing with and the spouse is trying to get the other spouse to make the right decision to enter treatment, all kinds of different shapes and sizes, right? But we see a lot of that uh, where, you know, the person is considering treatment or maybe they've even come in 
to us to detox. And now we're talking about that next level of care. And you see a lot of times uh, where we're trying, we're saying, hey, given this current situation with this, we're saying you need to do X, Y, and Z. And the spouse or the parent or whoever it is is like, yes, I agree. I agree they need to do this. They need to make these changes. They need to go into this level of treatment, but I'm not going to push them. It needs to be their decision. Right. And, and I think like, that's that's oh. kind of an old adage, right, when it comes to recovery is like you got to they've got to be willing. They got to do it themselves, right. which, you know, I, I definitely we, we see it all the time where people have a, a psychic shift while they're yeah, in treatment. Absolutely. And, and I even, you know, I'm a case of that where I went in and, you know, was intervened on by family and was kind of motivated by family to do it. I was willing to do it, but still I, I didn't I was didn't have my whole heart in it until yeah probably about two or three weeks into treatment, something right. changed where I said, wow, all I've done is run my life into the ground. Maybe mm -hmm. I should listen to some other people who actually know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. Know? Yeah. And I got out of my own way. I surrendered and I just put my hands up and said, I'll do whatever you guys tell me to do. Yeah. Right. And that's what makes the difference. Well, you know? So, so that's, that's interesting what you just said, because I, I think what you were saying is that the, the light went on for you or things shifted for you while you were in treatment. hundred percent. So like, yeah. like, I don't know, you get moments of willingness right. from people where they're yes. soft. Right. And I say to anybody who listen, don't, if, if somebody says they're willing to go, go yep. be yeah. prepared yes. for them to say that. And when they say go, go, yep. don't, 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 yeah. don't, you don't, don't need wait. a bath. Yes. You don't need to change your clothes. You don't <laughs> right. need a toothbrush. You need to see just your go. You need to go. You definitely don't need to see <laughs> yeah. the girlfriend first. Yeah. Right. Cause <laughs> any one of those things gives an opportunity for someone to settle back out of Absolutely. because it takes willingness. But like, I mean, the whole nature of addiction is that you can't say no, exactly. you don't want to stop. If like, if you're truly addicted, not from any pejorative sense, but just like, that's what addiction means is right. that, is that, is that you don't want to stop. You don't know how to stop. You, you can't imagine what it would be like to live life without that support. Absolutely. It's like, like, well, okay. All you got to do is be willing, and then what? You enter an environment where other people are facing that? I mean, for some people, you have to hit the crisis, right? Sure. It, it, and, and when I say crisis, I mean life disruption. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a complete tragedy. Unfortunately, that's the scary part, right? Yeah. You don't get to control how that unfolds. And so I'm for doing all the invitation you can, all the setup, mm -hmm. all the recovery tools, all the... Um, recovery capital that you can muster in a situation and it's going to be somebody else's choice. Yes. And that's the painful part, especially right. when it's your kid, mm -hmm. right? Cause the, if they hurt themselves, they're going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. You're going to hurt in ways that you know, you can't, Yeah, you know, that you, well, whatever. I don't want to use hyperbole yeah. on that, but like, you know, most parents have that uh, thing that comes up when you think about your kid hurting. And yet, if they don't suffer, if they don't fail, I mean, if you don't have the pain, you don't wake up. Yeah. It's just, I think that's the nature no of growth consciousness. Without, without pain, right? Yeah. Um, it's a great motivator, you know, and I think that, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, you know, it's interesting too when you think back, and, and I think back on my kind of story and journey and all of that, and um, yes, a lot of pain, a lot of, uh, very difficult times, you know, in my mid twenties, but I wouldn't change a thing. 
you know, and, yeah. and that, that brought me to where I am now. Right. And that experience has made everything of me and it's given me a career and, and all of those things where I didn't have a whole lot of direction prior to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really important to kind of look at, look at that motivator and, you know, and it's like shifting your perspective on like, what, what is, you know, what is that pain? What is that fear? It's not really that big, that bad of a thing if it's creating a lot of beauty in the long right. run. Right. Absolutely. Um, so we're well, so afraid of uncomfortability. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about to begin with. And, uh, this is, you know, uh, my expression of that, but you know, let parents and I'm guilty of the same thing with my own two boys. Right. But it, you have this tendency to want to protect them from the pain. And then, you know, we're doing that because we love them and we want to keep them safe and all that stuff. But at the same time, to your point, like we're, we're also, uh, you know, uh, robbing them of opportunities for growth, I think. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, 100%. absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing when we're talking about, you know, these decisions, right? You know, recovery versus continuing with, with uh, substance use or whatever the behavior is, is it's the same thing without setting those boundaries, without, you know, cutting off or, or limiting the resources, right? We're really doing the same thing. We're just kind of you know, uh, trying to protect them from the pain, so to speak, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, so sitting here talking about it as an abstract thing, yeah. it's like philosophical, right? right? The pain thing, right? Yeah. But like everybody's pain is like a hundred percent. Your pain, your your triggers, your things—they don't scare me. Right. Like I can sit here all day and talk about whatever deep things you've been through, right. and I'm good with that. Mm -hmm. But mine scare me. Yeah. Right. And it's the nature of it. And that's what, especially as with parents, it's like, well, how do you move through that? And I think that like a first stage is, is people have to feel comfortable at first, right? Because mm -hmm. they, they just do. If, if, if you're not comfortable, then somebody's not paying attention, right? You, you're like, that's your first sign. But like the more you sit with it, comfort's not the answer. In fact, mm -hmm. that's actually might be, addiction might be defined as addiction to comfort. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. Like, and so the, one of the first stages is separating comfort and safety. Mm -hmm. Cause like you, you just assume if you're uncomfortable, it's unsafe, but that's not true. Right. In fact, it's a, it is an uncomfortable decision to choose recovery, to go into, to surrender your control. Mm -hmm. Very uncomfortable. Absolutely. But like, like this place is safe, right? Mm -hmm. Right. It may be one of the most safe things for someone who has a, a substance dependency to be mm -hmm. uncomfortable, sure, safe, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think over time, like particularly like with the steps, I think people learn that safety is a judgment, right? Comfort's kind of a feeling, and safety is mm -hmm. a judgment. And you can be safe wherever you are. Right. And there's yeah. plenty of people who are really safe in dangerous circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the way you put Yeah, and that. I think that's why it's, you know, there's this huge spiritual component, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, because for me in that situation, like, that was not me making that decision, right? Like, I, I was touched by, you know, we'll call it the hand of God or whatever it was that, like, that I truly believe there was something that helped me kind of have that shift in perspective, right? Because it came out of nowhere. <laughs> it was not me. So I think that that's like an important thing to to look at too is the the spiritual part of this whole process and this and this and this journey and 
you know, really, you know, again, that's that's like, you know, the tools that we learn in this process. And I even think about our, our, our young children and, and things like that, too, is that we need to be teaching them a lot of these tools that we now have as a result of being in recovery, like meditation, journaling, mm-hmm. yoga, breath work, you know, a lot of the somatic work that we do, you know, that's all stuff that, that kids should be doing in the schools, right? Yeah. And, and like we need to be we need to be teaching them these life skills early on. Um, and unfortunately, it's just not. It's not talked about. It's not championed at all. All right. Yeah. You know? So so I get kind of excited to think about that because I have another angle on that. Okay. Um, coping skills are going to be a part of any good program, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the things I saw, like at Triangle Springs, mm-hmm. I found that until you recognize somewhat what someone's pain is, what they're really struggling with, they usually don't want a coping skill. Because mm. it's like, oh, you can teach me to breathe? Is right. that going to change my mm. whatever? It's like, no. Like a lot of times symptoms are the cry for help. Mm, Suicide sure. ideation is chief among them. And you know, that's that's such a touchy subject. You have to take it seriously as if it's an intent when you hear it. And you got to explore that. Mm. But when you do that, it's what I saw in the emergency room all the time. It's that cry for help. Yeah. Well, it's not a good measure if somebody does less suicide ideation. Right. Right. The good measure is that there's some shift in their life where they don't need that. It could be that. Mm. But but if you're just telling someone, it's basically someone's yelling for help and you're telling them to quiet down. Right. Well, here, if you just breathe them more, little, little, you won't, you, you won't, you won't be so loud. Right. And they're like, what, what's really going on is they're acting out because they can't. Well, the earlier thing I said, if that happens again, I'm going to lose my crap. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is they're losing their crap to show you that it's not working. They need something different. Right. And okay. Sometimes an incremental help helps someone get back in line and gain some confidence. And I think that's a difference between somebody who who has a real use disorder, somebody who's an addict. And I say that affectionately, mm-hmm. not in a pejorative. But, like, people who have serious dependency problems, they're – well, I think of myself as a personality. I, I don't know why I didn't wind up being an alcoholic because I'm an intense person. I don't think the rules apply to me. If a little is good, more is better. Like, oh my God, doesn't that sound does that sound familiar to you guys? Do you have any 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 clients that sound like that? Um and like that gets you in trouble. Right. Right? That kind of and if I was genetically predisposed, I'd probably be an alcoholic because I gave it a good run when I was, you know, a young man. Mm. And, you know, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but it's like I think that. People who encounter that, who have that problem, need to be respected as being different. There's mm-hmm. something different going on for them that they need help managing. Right. And yeah. and it's not like you can just use love and logic to help someone who's stuck in addiction. Yeah. They need some. They need something that helps change the framework that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah, no, and I and I I definitely I see what you're saying one hundred percent from that perspective. But I also think that, you know, for me in particular, it was I was able to have that spiritual experience as a result of doing some of those things, right? 
Yeah. And that was, that was really interesting because, you know, for me it was, I was losing my mind and I literally thought I was losing my mind. I was angry. I was frustrated. And, and listen, my coping skills had been taken away. So I had none. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and everybody said, well, why don't you try journaling? Why don't you try meditation? Why don't you? And and it took me about two weeks until I was so crazy that I said, okay, this Uh is the only thing Uh I know how to do. (laughs) I said, I'll do it. And I started journaling and I would go every night to this little chapel and I would just write just, you know, just like, um, you know, uh, you know, whatever came to my mind. And, um, can edit that piece. <laughs> so I would just write and I would go to this this little chapel and I would just write, write, write. And I realized after going back after about a week and reading it that I was writing to my higher power, right? And that was the first time that I said, oh, wait, it can be that easy. Like yeah. I can just, it's a relationship like I would have with any other person, you know, wow. I talk to them in that way. And this is the closest relationship that I'll ever have. And that like made that connection happen for me. And I, and from there it kind of went, it went from there. Right. But I was able to have that kind of spiritual note in that moment. You know? Yeah. That's Which cool. Was cool. So, so I'm a little bombastic sometimes in the way that I talk cause I'm intense. No, but I love it. I, I, listen, um, per- personalities are great on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but what you said makes it clear to me that I should make it clear yeah. that, that, I didn't mean that those coping skills and those activities yeah. are wrong. Like the steps are individual steps. Like, oh, oh my God, there's life in that. Um, um, one of my mentors talked about that is good orderly direction. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And and so I'm a big believer in that. I'm just saying early on yeah. in the and that was kind of the way we framed some of the earlier discussion is like like how do you move someone from yeah. from being in trouble to seeking. Yeah. Re- re- recovery. And, and I think a lot of times people would like to give someone incremental help mm-hmm. and then someone in real trouble, someone who's addicted um, will often reject incremental help as, yeah. as like, you don't get it. You don't see me. Right. Do you have any idea what I'm dealing right. with? And then the loving parents like, well, if you just do this, things will be a little better. And they're going like, no, I don't want things to be a little better better i don't that's a little better still sucks yeah right for me yeah and until the pain gets great enough yeah like in my situation we don't make the change yeah right uh it's it's really it's super complex it's uh can be frustrating yeah i know for for you justin as a clinician where yeah you know we see a a lot you know where we're doing so much work to get these folks to you know go to residential treatment because we know that's going to be the best next step for this client and the family just isn't willing to hold the line, as Justin was saying earlier. They really want it to be their decision, and ultimately, they don't move forward with our suggestion. They go to outpatient and blow the the household up, blow the family situation up, and we get a call three to four weeks later saying either we need to come back in because he's been using ever since he left, or um, and you guys were right, or you know we need to kind of you guys need to help us get him into the to the residential yeah. program we were talking about. So. It's, it's frustrating. It really is. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, just to throw this nugget in there, and I'm sure you can relate, we can all relate to this, right? But, um, you know, that's where we have to be mindful of our of our role in the situation sometimes. And that it, it can, it can be very frustrating, right? I mean, you're working with them, you're given 100% of your energy, you're working with the family, trying to get them to kind of see things for what it is so that we can get things moved in the right direction, in the right direction. Uh but sometimes we just don't win those battles, right? Mm-mm. You know, yeah. sometimes we just got to, if there was any change affected whatsoever, we just have to take that for what it is and then be hopeful that 
you know, either we're proven dramatically wrong or that we'll be there waiting to help when the, when the situation arises again, you know, to me, that's key. Yeah. Right. I want the kind of relationship with someone where their boundaries are respected and that I really do see them Mm -hmm. as a person, regardless of their use so that when they decide to do something, I'm a person that they would trust to come back to. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm all about preserving people's yeah. choice because I think yeah. that's, I mean, what else do you have? Right. Yep. What else 100%. do you have? And, and, and you can't make someone go into recovery. Hey, sometimes I wish we could. <laughs> you know, that's like, uh, yeah, the power no, no good man should have. No good man, no good man would want and no bad man should have. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That when I was in the emergency room, I would see people in passing, right? So they're in crisis often. Yeah. Right. And that's an opportunity for change. But I don't have much rapport because they're just passing through. I'm doing an assessment and most likely sending them on somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I would usually if 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 they were at a low point where they were really trying to decide, they're soft yeah. in sure. that time. And it's yeah. a time to reach someone, right? That's the controlled fall, right? They've reached some moment mm-hmm. of crisis and there's an opportunity. And I would usually say something like, um, there's a proverb that says, if you come whistling and singing loud blessings too early in the morning, it'll be counted as a curse. Mm. And that's a peculiar thing, right? right? So what does that mean? To me, that means if I look at you, person in the emergency room, and I say, oh, I see you're in crisis. I see all that pain, but that's going to be a gift to you. Mm-hmm. Then I'm whistling and singing loud blessings too early. Right. And your response is going to be something like, you know, F you. You don't see me. You don't know me. You don't right. get me. Yep. But but I would usually say that and ask, can I have your permission to, like, risk whistling and singing loud blessings too early? Because I think a lot of times people who really hurt are are also people who have a lot of insight on hurting. They have friends that hurt. They've thought about their pain. They've thought about their parents' pain. They've, they've really spent a lot of time swimming in that kind of environment. Yeah. And the blessing on the other side of that is that a lot of times you wind up being a huge gift to other people in pain mm-hmm. when you find recovery. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of people will seek recovery if they have some vision of some kind of life worth living. Yeah. And a lot of times that the that that vision is is the idea that you could really help somebody else. Mm-hmm. You, you 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 could save someone from going through the crap that you had to go through. Mm-hmm. And I mean honestly that's why I'm that's why I'm a therapist today. Yeah. yeah. 100% and I yeah, man. 100% relate to that. What a beautiful way to make a career, helping others, um, and, and again, turn, seeing that light turn back on in their eyes. There's really nothing better than that. Yeah, that's, that's why we do it, right? That's why we do it. So so let's, <laughs> let's do this. So, John, uh, thanks again for being here today. How can professionals, families, and individuals best connect with you? Um, John Krejci, J. Krejci at Gmail. It's uh, C-R-A-I-C-H-Y. Great. J. Krejci at Gmail is a good... Good, good way to reach me Perfect. and you guys. So 
can send them to me. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll absolutely. We'll have your information listed on, uh, on the podcast, uh, site and, and all of that. So we can make sure that people, uh, certainly find you if they, if they need yeah. services. I see people in person, um, downtown Raleigh, okay. north end of downtown so Raleigh. Quick, quick question for you related to that. Uh, so I know you work with young adults. Uh, huh? You mentioned you like working with parents. Would oh, you yeah. take on like a couple or, or a parent I, as a client? Oh yeah. Okay. So, perfect. so, so I think, you know, when somebody asks, what you do and what your specialty mm -hmm. is, it's addiction and trauma and failure to launch with young people. Okay. But through that work, uh, chaotic family situations, mm -hmm. um, because I worked in the emergency room, I work with physicians in recovery. Okay. So I do a lot of adult work, executive women, oddly, you know, my mom was the mayor of the so little town right. I'm from. Uh, right I, I, I really like helping strong people wrestle with strong challenges. So awesome. I don't do the average couples work like, mm -hmm. like, you know, date nights and communication styles. Those things are important. That's not my specialty, but sure. if someone is having, you know, chaotic kinds of trouble in their marriage and they need some healing, some trauma kinds of things, whether it's addiction or trauma, mm -hmm. I like doing that work. And okay. so I wind up doing parent work and couples work, family work, that kind of thing. It's a addiction is a family disease. Amen. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Do you have room on your caseload? Yeah. 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 I um I try to help people and move them along. Like that's I good. don't I don't just hang on. Uh, I'm out of network, and that's a barrier for some people. Sure. And um so in some situations I'll you know do something about that if it's a situation where I think I've got something unique to offer. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I stay fairly busy. But you know. Or periodically have have space. <laughs> yep. Very good. So absolutely. send them my way. <laughs> we will absolutely look forward to it. Well, thanks so much for being here today. Uh, thank you, Justin, for joining me. Yeah, and happy to be here. We will see you all next week. Thanks, guys. It was a good conversation.